If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, and we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 11 and chapter 12 this afternoon. Uh, these chapters end the, the first major section of the book of Isaiah, and chapter 12 forms kind of a climax to the whole uh, first 12 chapters of this book. But the closing image of chapter 10 uh, presents us with this once powerful nation of Assyria being pictured as a forest that has been clear cut by the judgment of God. This is how the message renders Isaiah 10, 33 through 34. It says, but now watch this. The master, God of the angel armies, swings his axe and lops the branches, chops down the giant trees, lays flat the towering forest on the march. His axe will make toothpicks of that forest, that Lebanon-like army reduced to kindling. It wasn't just Assyria, though, that Assyria that was clear-cut, though, right? Israel, too, was cut down for their pride, which means at the end of chapter 11, we find these two kingdoms that have been chopped down. Maybe you can picture that. You can picture a forest that has been reduced to stumps. Uh, or maybe you might think about these bushfires that are raging in Australia and how that's transforming the landscape. What was once lush and beautiful is now burnt. And that's sort of the picture that we end with here. And so as you stand in those, that clearing in your mind's eye, you might wonder if there's any hope of restoration. Will this place ever be restored to its former glory? Will they, the trees that have been cut down, will they ever grow back and be beautiful and glorious the way that they once were. I think that image helps us to feel a little bit like that the remnant of God's people felt. Remember, we've been talking about this group, this remnant that remained faithful to the Lord in the midst of the rebellion that was around them. Ahaz and, and Judah on the whole had rejected trusting in God and chosen to trust in foreign powers, but there was a faithful few who were still leaning on the Lord. And yet now, they're either preparing for the acts of judgment to come, or they're standing among the ruins of this clear-cut forest. The once glorious kingdom of Israel and the beautiful city of Jerusalem are now in ruins. And the question is, can they ever be restored? Could they ever become this holy, glorious city of chapters 2 and 4? What does the future hold? And is there any point in holding on? Is there any point in trying to stay firm in faith? Because is there any future for this kingdom? It reminds us that remaining faithful is no easy task, even when things are going well. And, and holding on to hope when everything is being chopped down around us is even more painful. Sometimes we just struggle to believe. We stand in the midst of the burnt out forest of our lives or the burnt out forest of the church or of the world or of our family, or of our workplace, of a government, of a nation, just of our dreams. And it's hard to believe that anything is ever going to be right again. And we're not sure how to lean on the Lord, or even if it's worth it. Andrew Peterson, probably my favorite singer-songwriter, sings about what we feel. He says, I say faith is a burden. It's a weight to bear. 
It's brave and bittersweet, and hope is hard to hold to. Lord, I believe. Only help my unbelief. If we're going to bear up under the weight of faith, if we're going to hold on to hope, especially when everything is clear-cut around us, then one of the things that we're going to need is we're going to need something to look forward to. We're going to need some vision of future, the future res- restoration of this forest that has been clear-cut. There's nothing like a, an end goal, a reward, a, a vision of what we're working towards to keep us going. If you're running a marathon, the hope of the finish line is what keeps you going. If there was no finish line, you'd stop, right? In Isaiah 11, we're, we're given a vision. Surrounded by a clear-cut forest, we're invited to walk over to one of those stumps. We're invited to go over to the stump of the promised seed, uh, the promise of a king like David, the promise of a Messiah. And there, it's as if the Lord invites us to kind of kneel down and look closely at this stump that's been cut off. And when we do, when we look close, what do we see? Coming out of that stump is a bright green shoot. There's a a sign of life and a source of hope in the midst of all this devastation. There's a glimpse of the future that keeps us faithful in the present. In this passage, the Lord not only gives us a, a source of hope, but he gives us words of praise that we can take up in response to what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do one day. Chapter 11 reveals to us the Messiah and, his ki- and what his kingdom will be like, and chapter 12 is this song of praise that forms the climax to this section that began back in chapter 6. And together, these verses say this to us this afternoon. They say, let a vision of the Lord's salvation lead you to trust and not be afraid, and to glorify and make his name known. That's a longer big idea, so I'll say it a few times. Let a vision of the Lord's salvation lead you to trust and not be afraid, and to glorify and make his name known. So we're going to get this vision of the Lord's salvation, and it's going to lead us into two areas. It's going to lead us to trust and not be afraid, two sides of the same coin. And then it's going to lead us to glorify and make his name known. Let's look at Isaiah 11 and 12 together. And as you do, here's kind of what you'll see. Uh, Verse 1 speaks about this shoot, this branch that is coming, which is referring to the coming Messiah and Savior that we now know is Jesus Christ. And then verses 2 through 9, we're told what he's going to be like and what his future kingdom will be like. Some, some of the most famous verses in all of the Bible are in here. Um, kids, pay attention to these pictures of animals. Really interesting. If you like animals, think about animals in the new kingdom. That's what God describes here, what the new kingdom animals are going to be like. Uh, the rest of chapter 11, so from, from verse 10 on, describes the people that God is drawing in as part of this salvation. And then chapter 12 is this song of response. So we have the Messiah in verses one through five, verses six through nine are his kingdom, verses 10 through 16 are the people of that kingdom, and then verse 12, verse, chapter 12 is just the response that we sing and, and proclaim. So hear then God's word from Isaiah chapter 11 and 12. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, 
the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the displaced of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will have, wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Chapter 12, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O, o Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. May God let a vision of his salvation lead us to trust and not be afraid and to glorify and make him known. Let's begin by just thinking about what all of chapter 11 is telling us. If I had to give a title to that whole chapter, I would say it's this, Consider the Coming King and Kingdom. Consider the Coming King and Kingdom. And we're going to look at that, that King and Kingdom in three different parts, but that's the whole chapter. And as we look at this promise of, of the King and the Kingdom, know that it's, it's fulfilled in, in different ways at different times. In some ways, Israel saw a partial fulfillment of the picture that's presented here. And then in the coming of Jesus, we see some more come to pass. 
the sending of the Spirit and the beginning of the church also fulfills some of this picture, and there's still also this future fulfillment that is to come. So when you're trying to say, where does this fit, where does the fulfillment of this fit, well, it fits in a lot of different places. As one preacher I listened to said, you can think about the fulfillment in four different ways, and he just gave four simple words. I think they're helpful. The fulfillment happens to Israel, it happens through Jesus, it happens through the church, and it will happen in the end. And so there's a, a, a longing that we still have for the end, but in the same way we can see some of the fulfillment through Israel, through Jesus, and through the church as we wait for the end. So hopefully as we walk through the passage, you'll hear all four of those fulfillments that are happening. But the first thing we're told about in verses one through five as we think about this coming king and kingdom is the righteous and faithful king. The righteous and faithful king. Uh, we've been reading about a lot of kings, haven't we, here in, in, in Isaiah 1 through 12. Uh, kings like Ahaz and Pekah and Rezin and the king of Assyria. A- and we see that these wicked and sinful kings are all chopped to the ground because of their lack of faith. But from one of those lifeless stumps, from the stump of Ahaz, who was of the line of David and who is even mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, from that stump springs a shoot. We're told in Isaiah 4, 2, that in a, fu- in a future day, the, the branch of the Lord would be beautiful and glorious. And then at the end of chapter 6, maybe you remember that, that an enigmatic statement that the stump, uh, that, that Israel is this stump of a chopped down terebinth tree and the holy seed is its stump. And now we see that from this dead stump, life is emerging. Kids, I know you guys like to draw pictures. If you want to draw a fun picture, Draw a cut down stump with a little shoot coming out of it. This dead stump with life springing out of it. What a beautiful picture of the Messiah. We're told that this stump is the stump of Jesse, who is David's father. I was reading a commentary about, by this guy named uh, Mautier, and he explained the significance of this, and it, it blew my mind. Andrea has to hear it a second time, because I already read it to her once, but... Here's what he says. The reference to Jesse indicates that the shoot is not just another king in David's line, but rather another David. In the books of kings, successive kings were assessed by comparison with, quote, their father David. But no king is called David or son of Jesse. Among the kings, David alone was the son of Jesse, and the unexpected reference to Jesse here has tremendous force. When Jesse produces a shoot, it must be David. But to call the expected king the root of Jesse is altogether another matter, for this means that Jesse sprang from him. He is the root support and origin of the messianic family in which he would be born. I love the Bible. What a beautiful thing. Because the the promised seed, in a very real sense, is David himself. But he's an even greater David than David was. He's a king, in fact, who is the origin and source of David himself. This coming king is an amazing king indeed, isn't he? Verse 2 then speaks about this king and, and his endowment with the Spirit of the Lord and how the Spirit was going to work through him and make him the perfect king. Other kings and prophets had known the power of the Spirit on them, but this king receives the fullness of the Spirit and is made the perfect king. He is perfect in his mind as he acts with wisdom and understanding. He is perfect in all of his works. He gives right counsel and he acts with perfect might. 
and he's perfect in his heart. He rules with complete knowledge, and he's driven by the fear of the Lord. Verses 3 and 4 talk about how this king judges with righteousness, especially for the poor and the meek. We're told that his decisions are not rooted simply in what he sees. They're not rooted simply in external evidence. When I first read that, I thought, well, isn't that all we have to go on? You want to receive evidence, and then you make the best judgment. Well, yes, an earthly king would do that, but this king is able to see to the heart of the matter. He can judge with equity and justice perfectly. True justice is said to be blind. It's impartial and it's objective. And yet often in this world, don't we know that external factors have an influence on how someone is judged? We have a good justice system, but it's not perfect. The color of someone's skin, their social status, the amount of money or influence they have, these can all influence justice in our world. But not so with this king. He's going to judge with perfect righteousness. He cannot be bought. He cannot be swayed. He will always do what is right. All this is said in contrast to the kings that we've been thinking about before, kings like Ahaz or like the king of Assyria. They were foolish in their alliances. They were prideful in their use of might. They were limited in their understanding. They feared everything except for the Lord. They oppressed the poor and the meek. They were unrighteous in their judgments. But not this coming king. This king is different than any other king that we've ever seen on earth. If these characteristics are set in contrast to kings like Ahaz and the king of Assyria, what we also see is that they're fulfilled in Jesus. That's who Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about their fulfillment in the person of Jesus. From the beginning of his ministry, as Jake read, he was filled with the Spirit. He walked in the Spirit and obeyed the Spirit with fullness. He grew in wisdom. He had perfect insight. He could see even to the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts. He acted with perfect kindness and compassion. He was the most powerful human being to ever walk the earth, but he never wielded his power to harm others or for selfish gain. He lived in dependence on the Father. He acted with justice and equity for all people, especially for the poor and for the meek. What's beautiful for us as those who have uh, who are New Testament Christians, is that in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we see much more than just a simple shoot or a branch coming out of that dead stump. We've seen this promised Savior. We've beheld his glory. And we've begun to see some of what that king is like. And not only who the, what the king is like, but also the kingdom that King Jesus is bringing into the world, which is where we go next in verses 6 through 9. Uh, we talked about, um, about Jesus as the righteous and faithful king. Let's think now about the peaceful and pervasive kingdom. The peaceful and pervasive kingdom. The best way to describe the picture of verses 6 through 9 is as a reversal of the fall and a restoration of Eden. There's a, a harmony that's shown in it it pervades all of creation, and it's shown here, especially in the animal kingdom. I don't know if you've seen these, but this reminded me of those videos that make the rounds on the internet of these unlikely animal pairings. Uh, a quick Google search told me about surprising animal friends. Have you seen these? So uh, one was about a dog and a lion. 
um, a cat and a fox, an ostrich and a giraffe, and even a lion, a tiger, and a bear. Oh my, right? We got to say it. We know this, that, that Romans 8 is talking about that all of creation is groaning, right? Even the animals are waiting with eager expectation for the restoration of all things. That death and the death and violence and destruction that are a part of this world, they are not the way things are supposed to be. And so the whole world knows that this is not right and they're longing for the day when things will be made right again. So there is hope for this. I, I don't think this is just some fanciful picture. I think this is supposed to be somewhat realistic about what the kingdom will be like. But these animal descriptions also speak of deeper changes that flow from the rule of the Messiah, that they mark the whole world. That same commentary, Matthieu, identifies them like this. He says in verse 6, we see this, a reconciliation of old hostilities. A reconciliation of old hostilities. So natural enemies will become not just tolerant of one another, but welcoming of one another. The individuals and groups in this world that get your blood boiling, they will be transformed into your friends and your family. The new kingdom sees a reconciliation of old hostilities. Verse seven, these animals, what we see is a change of nature. A change of nature. The natural craving of meat for some animals will be replaced by a vegetarian diet. I'm not sure what that says about what we're gonna eat in the new kingdom, but it gives me hope that my sinful, natural, Adam-inherited, world-influenced, flesh-driven cravings that are in my heart, they're gonna be gone. And they're gonna replace, be replaced by this desire for, of love for the Lord and love for others, a complete reversal of cravings and desires. And then verse eight speaks of the curse being removed. What's the animal that's focused on in chapter eight? We had lots of different animals in verses six and seven. What's the animal in verse eight? It's the snake. The snake, the picture of, of evil's desire to strike and kill. What's he going to be doing? He's going to be playing with a child. He will be a child's plaything. His sting, the sting of sin, sin and death is going to be gone forever. What a beautiful picture. The salvation of Jesus allows us to taste these things even now, to know what reconciliation is like, to know what a change of nature feels like. But we're also longing for that day when evil is eradicated, when the snakes and the lions of this world are no longer a threat, when there's no fear of walking through the night alone when there's no more hostility between you and your friends, you and your family, no more hostility between nations, there's no threats of war, no more missiles that are being shot back and forth. This is a day when children are not hurt or harmed anymore. Parents, we won't need to fear anymore for your sons or your daughters. Everything will be at peace. That's what the new kingdom is like. It's this place of peace where there is no fear. How's that gonna happen? What's gonna bring that kind of peace? That's what everyone's searching for, aren't they? How can we bring peace to the earth? What does verse nine tell us? It tells us that it's going to be because the earth will be filled 
with the knowledge of God. Verse nine, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How amazing is that? It's a true understanding of who God is, a recognition of his kingship, a coming to him and seeking his wisdom and his counsel. That's what's going to bring peace. It's faith, it's trust, it's humility. Nothing but Jesus reigning as king is ever going to result in lasting peace in this world. Only when the knowledge of the Lord fills the earth and when nations stream to him to seek advice and wisdom, that's when peace will reign. Verse nine shows us that this peaceful kingdom is also a pervasive kingdom. It's not just in Jerusalem or in Israel, but the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of God. The promise of Emmanuel that, that Isaiah made earlier of God with us is going to be true for the whole world. And the result is that Eden will be restored. In fact, it's even greater than Eden because it's going to be a new heavens and a new earth beyond even the harmony and the beauty of, e of the garden. The worldwide reach of the kingdom leads us then to consider the rest of chapter 11 and we see the members of this new kingdom. So we see the king and then we see this peaceful and pervasive kingdom and now we see who's a part of it, the members of this new kingdom. That's chapter 11 verses 10 through 16. The root of Jesse shows up here again, either bookending verse one or else beginning a new section. Either way, we're reminded that it's the coming Messiah, it's the savior, it's the greater David, who is going to gather his people. Verse 10 says that he will stand like a banner, drawing the nations in. We might think about the star that appeared in the night sky to the wise men in the east. Remember, it, it rose up so that they could know where this new king was at. They saw the star and they followed it to the Messiah. And Isaiah's idea, idea here seems to be the same, that as the nations see this savior, they all come streaming into Zion. They're looking for the king. Not only do we see the, the drawing in of the nations, but 11 through 16 describe the return and the reunification of all God's people. The, the remnant of God's true people had been scattered to the four corners of the earth, to the, to the nations that represented north, south, east, and west. That's what's described there um, in verse 11. But a signal, a banner, a spotlight is going to be raised for them in verse 12. Again, another signal, just as in verse 10. And this one's going to cause this remnant to return to the land and to the Lord. It's somewhat comical. When I read verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel. I heard that word assemble and I thought about the Avengers. And I've only seen one Avengers movie, so this must be, I could be totally using it wrong, but there's something where they say Avengers assemble. Am I right on that? And then all the Avengers come together and do something great. And that's what came to my mind. So you might just think about the Lord calling all his people to assemble. To, to gather to him, and they gather in strength and in unity, and they do it to bring peace and justice on the earth, more than the Avengers ever could. As with verse 6, this gathering means a reconciliation of old hostilities because we see the nation of Israel reunited with the northern and southern kingdoms coming together to defeat their enemies. They're going to come and they're going to submit to the rule of one king once more. This would come true in part as God's people were returned from exile to Jerusalem. And yet, it also speaks of God's people being drawn to him through 
all generations. That's, that's this picture. This is God gathering his people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is what God is always doing, drawing people to himself. Verses 15 and 16 talk about this return in terms of the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. God would dry up a river, probably the Euphrates River, which was vital uh, to Assyria, and he would make a highway for his people to come back to him. David, David Jackman says of this, he says, the Old Testament language describes the gospel reality that no power can resist God's redemptive purposes. He will bring all his people into the rest of his kingly rule. There's going to be a great ingathering of God's people in the last day. When he returns, all the nations will come to him and his people who have been scattered to the north, south, east, and west will stream into the holy city. And in that final day, God's kingdom will have no divisions, no denominations, no cliques, no contests. We will be one even as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. Even now we see this in part. The coming of Jesus signaled its beginning and the day of Pentecost confirmed it as, as people from many nations were gathered in Jerusalem and the Spirit came to rest on and fill them all. There's this reversal of, of Babel such that people of many languages were praising God together. This then is, is something that is, that is true now and also something that we're seeking to reflect in the present. We long for all nations to worship the one true and living God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. This vision of, of King Jesus and of his kingdom, this, this hope of the present and the future keeps us firm in faith. It keeps us going. In fact, I think that part of the application of this passage for us is to seek out signs of hope. If I had to think about just a simple application, it would be seek out signs of hope. Look for signs of the reign of the king right now. Signs that of his kingdom coming and, and breaking into the present. Signs of this beautiful and diverse people that he's gathering and united. We see signs of what's spoken of here, don't we? We see it when through Christ enemies are reconciled. We see it, I think, in the, just the unflappable hope of children. We see it in moments when righteousness and justice prevail especially for the poor and for the meek. We see it in the beauty of the church welcoming people from the four corners of the earth. We see it in Tuesday ESL classes. We see it in mission trips to the Philippines. We see it when the good news of Jesus changes a person for eternity. There's glimpses of this kingdom. We need to seek out those signs of hope. And when we look for them, there, there's signs of hope everywhere in this broken world. Small glimpses of glory that keep us leaning on the Lord. A, a song by a guy named John Mark McMillan came to mind, and it's called Between the Cracks. And in the first verse, he talks about the way daisies grow up from the sidewalk cracks of downtown ghettos, reminding us with their brightness that there's hope even in the darkest places. And then he paints this picture that if you like it half as much as I do, I guess that's makes it worth it, but he says, hope stands high on the 15th floor of a Christmas tree perched about the ledge of a fortress of steel that's trying too hard to be somebody's home. So just picture this apartment complex, massive building, and a Christmas tree on the 15th floor. 
This must have happened to him because then he says, as it seized my attention from I-85, though the throes of my day were still writhing inside, I lifted my head as I drove home that night and knew everything was gonna be fine. I just love that picture because I think if our eyes are, uh, of faith are peeled, then we're gonna see daisies and sidewalk cracks and we're gonna see Christmas trees on apartment balconies and we're gonna know that that the hope of the kingdom is alive and well, even in small things like that, that we can keep going, we can keep trusting because there's a kingdom that's broken into this world and it's coming again, that the king and his kingdom are coming, that they're here even now. And when we see those things, we'll want to sing, which I think is an application of this passage as well. Seek out signs of hope and sing. And what should we sing? Well, Isaiah spells it out for us in Isaiah chapter 12. He tells us in chapter 12 what the people of the kingdom should say and sing. Chapter 12 is a description of what the people of the kingdom should say and sing. When your heart is, is filled with wonder at what God has done and you don't know what to sing about, go to Isaiah 12. Better let, yet, let's memorize it. So even if we don't have our Bible or our phone on us, we know how to respond. I'll quickly walk through these verses, but they deserve a lifetime of meditation. Verses one and two, again, as I said at the beginning, speak in the second person singular. So it's you as an individual, you will sing. A, a reminder that our salvation, we are saved into a group, but we're, we're saved personally, that it's okay to say Jesus is my personal savior. He's the one who saved me. And you're gonna sing about how God, who was angry, is now your comforter. Like Israel, our sins have caused a separation between us and our God. We deserve to be chopped down, just like Israel and Assyria. We've rebelled against him. His wrath is rightly against us. We've, we live, have lived as Israel did in chapters 9 and 10. You remember that refrain? His anger was still against them, and his arm was stretched out still. That was the state of Israel. But the beauty of salvation is that Jesus, that through Jesus, God is no longer angry with us. That his anger is turned away because it was poured out on Christ. Jesus was chopped down on our behalf through his death on a tree, through his crucifixion. And because of his sacrifice, we, through faith, can know God's comfort instead of God's anger. Verse two tells us what the saved look like. They are those who trust and are not afraid. Do you remember that that was the call of what the remnant was supposed to do in chapter 10 verses 20 through 27 that we looked at last week? You remember they were supposed to lean on the Lord and not be afraid. And this here, Isaiah says, I will trust and will not be afraid. And when we, when we trust in Jesus, we no longer need to fear. We don't need to fear God's wrath. We don't need to fear the anger or the power of any person or nation. We don't even need to fear death itself. God becomes our strength and our song and our salvation. Those words there, the second part of chapter two, are taken directly from the song that they sang after crossing the Red Sea. The Lord God is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation. This leads to the joy of verse three as we continually draw from the salvation we have in Christ, but it also leads to this corporate song, this you of verse four, that's plural. Y'all will say in that day, the whole group of God's people in that day 
will say this. They will proclaim the glory of his name to all people. We will tell others of the glorious things that God has done, and we will seek to make him known in all the earth. This is why we proclaim the gospel to our coworkers and our friends and our family. It's why we share our testimony, our story of God's grace to us. It's why we support world missions, because by God's grace, we've come to know this salvation. God's anger has turned away from us. He's compassionate and comforts us, and we want everyone else to know this too. It's natural that when you have good news, you want to tell others. I was speaking with a friend, and he was telling me that when his um, wife was pregnant with one of their children, they said, well, we'll just wait and not tell everyone. And he said, I just told everyone. I wasn't supposed to, but I couldn't. I could not. And by the time we were supposed to tell everyone, I had already said it to everybody. Everyone already knew. That's what the good news of the gospel is like. It's something that if we catch it, if we see what God has done, then we, we can't keep it down. We want to tell everyone. It's rooted in the joy that we've found that we've come to know this salvation. I think this closing song helps us to to end on the right note because it's a note of worship and praise to God alone. We said if we're gonna remain faithful, we need this vision of the future kingdom and that's gonna lead us to trust and not be afraid, to to glorify God and proclaim his kingdom and and his, his goodness and his salvation. But it's not just the vision that's gonna cause us to do that, right? It's the king himself who's gonna keep us faithful. It's Jesus who's going to empower us to do what we're called to do, to remain faithful. When when we worship God as our strength and our song and our salvation, we see that that we cannot right the wrongs in our own hearts, let alone in the world. But Jesus can. Jesus can make us the faithful city, the faithful Zion. He can save and protect his remnant of faithful children. He already has, and he will one day. He has saved us, and he will save us. He has come to be with us, and he will come to be with us again. And in light of who he is and what he's done and what he will do, Jesus says to us what he said to Jairus. He says, do not fear, only believe. And so my hope is that this vision of the Lord's salvation would lead us to trust and not be afraid. But not just to keep that to ourselves, not just to trust and not be afraid, but also to glorify and make God's name known to all people. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word. And then I will pray for us. Father, thank you for this vision of what is to come. Thank you that you have revealed part of it to us in Christ and in the church. And yet we know that things are not completely as they should be. But we also know that you are coming again and will take us to yourself and all things will be well. Lord, help us to remain faithful in the midst of that. Help us to remain faithful when We lose hope. Lord, let this vision of 
of what you have done and what you will do fill our, our minds and our hearts so that we would respond with song. Or we confess that we struggle to hold on to faith. And sometimes it does just feel like a burden. But Lord, we have a sure salvation. We have a, a hope that cannot be shaken. So Lord, keep us standing firm. Keep us remembering what is coming. And Lord, we ask that you would be the one who keeps us. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.